Thanks, guys. Everybody, welcome back to Hiawatha. And if it's your first time, welcome to uh, you for the first time. Glad you guys are with us today. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And that's really thing need to be screwed in. <laughs> These things twist, or they? Oh, they do. That's years of working with this thing right there. It's like <laughs> it's slowly unwinded about an inch after nine years of <laughs> yeah, about a, just a millimeter every week, and that's what you get about an inch of that. All right. Like I said in Spencer earlier, we're starting new in the book of Genesis, uh, which has been on our uh, short list, uh, or my list, our overseer's list, as we, as we constantly are talking about what we want to preach here, what part of the Bible we feel God leading us to to talk about, and we kind of always mix that with uh, direct leading of the Spirit, mixed people from Hiawatha are asking about, and, and try to bounce between genres as well. If you didn't know this, the Bible is comprised of 66 books, and uh, all of them are not the same genre. There's a the, um, book, the, the book is in its entirety, and they're not all the same. So whether it's poetry or prophecy, narrative or gospel accounts in the New Testament, which are kind of a narrative as well, apocalypse, uh, epistles, uh, there's just a lot, a lot of... It's green, but... Handhelds, okay. Just going in and out. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. And so um, today, then, we're going to look at Genesis' narrative. We'll come back to that here in, in a second. But uh, we've been in uh, other, other forms of uh, New Testament narrative and epistles and uh, Old Testament poetry in recent years. And so um, one of the reasons why I wanted, I wanted to do this book is because it's just different than where we've been uh, lately. So. Uh, so as we've been mentioning then uh, for a few weeks now, today is going to begin this series and we'll, uh, this will take us through early December, maybe longer, uh, depending on how exactly things go throughout the spring, summer, and fall. But uh, in general, we're going to be taking the scenic route through the book. So uh, pretty much preaching every word, but in some areas we're going to summarize it. Again, it is narrative, so that's necessary sometimes, but basically uh, every, every word. So uh, today's plan is to introduce the book briefly, a little bit, little bit different today, and we usually start sermon series this way, where a half of what we say the first sermon a lot of times is just talking about the book, what is it? Uh, I wouldn't want to presume that all of you have read this, I'm sure a lot of you haven't yet, and that's great, uh, we're, we're going to never presume that, uh, and so we'll explain a basic outline, talk over some of its content, more on the 30,000 foot view, and then uh, more importantly, talk about how to read this book, that's mo more important than the what is the how here. Uh, so how do we read this book? How do you approach a book like this uh, biblically? And then we'll end uh, with a few comments on the first verse, uh, Genesis 1-1, a little bit later on. So if you want to turn to that already, you can have it ready on your devices or your Bibles. That'd be great, but um, we'll have it on screen here too in a little bit. Uh, let me just say on a personal note here, I'm, I'm really excited for this series, and I speak for our elders too, overseers, our, our lay pastors and vocational pastors here alike when I say this. Uh, but personally for me, Really excited. We, we have not been in an Old Testament narrative book for years, like I said, at least expositionally. We've commented on uh, books like this because the, the Bible, as we'll see even today, is kind of like a big uh, interconnected web. Uh, there's lots of uh, quotations amongst itself of other parts of the book that kind of help us interpret it. And so we've been in Genesis, just not in this way, uh, an Old Testament narrative, just not in this way for a little while. So I'm excited for that. Uh, two, there's just so much Jesus in this book. Uh, he's everywhere in it. And that may sound anachronistic uh, to you, but uh, it's not, and I'll explain why more in just a minute. Uh, but the third thing is, um, I spend a lot of time in this book devotionally and in the classroom setting alike, and it's just fun. It's a fun book. 
Uh, it, it evokes awe and disgust and anger and joy and thankfulness and it just makes you scratch your head a lot. And, and there will be, I guarantee you, no matter how much you've read this book before, there will be times in this series, probably multiple times, where you will say, I cannot believe that's in the Bible. Uh, and for, the, for better or worse, like that, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, uh, but it, it's all there for a reason. God doesn't make mistakes, uh, but there's a lot of messiness in this book that, uh, that helps tell the story, and so we'll uh, come to that uh, throughout the series. And, and all, so it does all of that, all the while setting the stage for the rest of the Bible. Uh, it's really, just think about it this way, it's the beginning of the best book in the world. That's what we get to look at together for the, these next several months together is it's the beginning of the best book that's ever, writ, uh, ever been written. And so, so that's why I'm excited about it, and I hope you guys uh, too catch, uh, catch wind of that here as we start up today and these next few weeks uh, get cracking through chapter one. So uh, what is Genesis then? Uh, Genesis is, like I've been mentioning, the first book of the Bible written uh, sometime between 1500 and 1300 BC by Moses. Uh, it, it means beginnings, and so we'll call this series the Book of Beginnings at times. Uh, in fact, the, the Jewish title for the book is uh, the first three words of the book, which is in the beginning. And so uh, the Jews called it and still call it today uh, the book in the beginning. So it, it tells us the theological history of creation, how God made the world, how sin entered the world, how that drastically severed all relationships, especially between us and God, and how God initiated his rescue plan to renew all things. It's basically Genesis right there in a, in, a, in a nutshell. It contains the stories that you may or may not have heard of, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the temptation of the devil, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, the Tower of Babel, Abraham almost sacrificing his son Isaac, Joseph and his coat of many colors, and, uh, and much more. So again, some of, some of which you may have heard of and some which maybe you haven't, but that's, this is the book that those stories uh, come from. A very rough outline could look like this. Uh, primeval history, uh, the first 11 chapters, which covers creation, fall, which is when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve and their rebellion against God, and the spread of sin, uh, chapters 1 through 11. And then the rest of the book, which is the majority of the book, is just stories surrounding Abraham and his family, uh, Abraham and his kin, chapters 12 to 50. And so one thing you'll notice right here, right off the bat, even just by means of an outline, is how quickly the story moves from the more cosmic and global and humankind perspective to a story of a family. So it, it, it starts way wide, then hones in really quickly to be very specific uh, for much of the book, focusing first on Abraham, who is the first Hebrew. The Hebrews became the Israelites, who became known as the Jews a little bit later in history, but focusing on Abraham and his kids, his descendants. And so what this tells us, even, again, even by just means of an outline here, is that God intends to save the world through a person. God intends to save the world through a person who would become a family, who would become a nation, Israel, who would all point us ahead to Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that came before him. So God then, after sin enters the world, he promises in this book, we'll get to this in chapter 3, to bring restoration through Eve's seed. So Adam and Eve, uh, Eve's seed, she will have uh, children, even after sin enters the world, she'll be given the grace to have kids, Adam and Eve, and one will come from her uh, who will crush the serpent's head, the serpent is the devil, who will undo all the wrong that he brought into the world and Adam and Eve with him, essentially. So then Abraham, later in chapter 12, is identified as one who continues in this line. So 
when God says kind of cryptically earlier that, that I will redeem the world through Eve's seed, Abraham later is identified as that line, that one, that initial kind of uh, marker in the line that, um, that God is talking about. So genealogy then is a big deal for this book. Uh, Genesis basically then shows us the very early stages of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Let's think about it that way. Genesis shows us the very early stages of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ being that ultimate one who would come from the line of Abraham, who in turn comes from the line of Eve uh, to crush uh, sin and death and all of our enemies, to allow us to be able to, to fellowship and to walk with God again in, in an unhindered manner. But remember, in terms of genealogies, and I'll, I'll <clears throat> pound this home throughout the series because it's something that's easy to forget and, and not even just to know for a, a lot of people, but whenever we deal with biblical genealogies, uh, genealogy biblically is not just about bloodline, but about resemblance. So um, God then is not saying in Genesis, you know, someday I'm going to bring my son into the world through Abraham's bloodline, but until then, here's a bunch of random and extremely weird and seemingly out of place stories about their lives. And then, blip, Christ comes later. It's not how, that's not what's happening here in Genesis or, or anywhere throughout the Old Testament. Rather, he's saying Christ one day will come to complete this bloodline resembling the life and times of those who live their lives in it, yet surpassing it and perfecting it and redeeming it at the same time. We'll come back to that throughout the series. But just understand that for today's purposes, that genealogy is not just about bloodline. Uh, it is. And history, it is. But it's about uh, resemblance as well. And that leads me right into my, my next section here, which is actually the more important piece more than the what, though the what is important. And by the way, if you want to know more about the what, we don't spend uh, usually entire sermons on the what in terms of who wrote the book and the date. And I mentioned a couple things here, our perspective formally. But if you want more on that, we can give you, you know, a, a stack of books about as tall as I am. So just, <laughs> and there's a lot out there, a lot of good stuff you may or may not know about, but we have a lot of good resources. Or just want to talk to you too. We'd love to just get coffee with you and talk more about how this book was comp com composed and how we know Moses wrote it and things like that. But we're not going to take time uh, in a sermon to, uh, uh, to talk more about that today. So, uh, but the how is more important. So how do we read Genesis? And I kind of alluded to this a second ago, and that song actually we did too uh, a few minutes ago hit on this subtly as well. But the short answer to that, and, and this won't be a surprise to you if you've been a part of Hiawatha for any length of time, uh, but the short answer is we read Genesis with Jesus in mind continually. The longer answer is, we read Genesis in the way the New Testament reads it, uh, or, or any part of, of the Bible for that matter. But as we read Genesis, we read it in, in the way the New Testament reads it, as if it were part of a greater story, as if it was actually theology, not just history, or as we might say, theological history of the Christ and related New Testament realities before him. A very common mistake people make sometimes in reading Genesis or other parts of the Bible is to treat those books as books unto themselves, as though there were islands in the middle of the ocean that can't speak to other islands, that can't speak to other books, that can't speak to other parts that, of the puzzle that make up the whole, as if it were a message that were special or unique or standalone to the rest of the Bible. Uh, we, in other words, we might get Genesis's message through Genesis itself, you might hear uh, somebody say. But as the Bible says about Genesis in the New Testament, uh, it contains the gospel beforehand. Uh, Galatians 3.8 says, this is in the, in the New Testament, in Genesis, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Galatian church, 
Genesis foreseen that God would justify or save the Gentiles or non-Jews by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. He's quoting chapter 12 there. And we'll come to that in a few months from now, actually, probably, or maybe sooner. Uh, but we'll get there. But for today's purposes, just to see that the New Testament calls Genesis the gospel beforehand. The gospel is in the book. That's how it's handling it from a, a greater biblical theological perspective. The gospel, to be clear, being the good news of God's grace towards sinners like me and you through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So Genesis is about that gospel according to the Bible. It's about that gospel just beforehand. It's a prophecy of it in narrative form. So a, a great exercise uh, for you guys to do sometime if you're interested is to, and I've said this about the, the Psalms in recent weeks as well, it's the same thing, but is to look at every time Genesis is quoted in the uh, New Testament, which we will do in this series, we'll come to that in a little bit today, we'll start that today, but every time the New Testament quotes Genesis, and note how every single time it's about Jesus, every single time, it's about Christ or some other related New Testament reality like the church or the principle of being saved by grace, not by works, every single time, without exception. So if we want to read the book biblically, if, if we believe the Bible gives us the blueprints for understanding it, we have to read it this way, as though it were about Christ or the gospel, his grace, his plan of salvation beforehand, as if it were a prophecy, as if it were theology, not just history of the bloodline of Jesus. And so what you and I ultimately need then, this is true for any book again, but what, we, what we're going to need then these next few months together in, in the book of Genesis to understand this book properly is the Holy Spirit's help. We're going to need each other. The Holy Spirit illuminates the text, so we always have to pray for his help. We need his help, always. We need other believers to help us see this more clearly, and we need the gospel. We need to understand what happened on the cross. We need to understand how that is beforehand here in the book of Genesis. In fact, it's, it's so much the case that without the gospel, Genesis will remain hopelessly veiled to you. Without the gospel, you will never understand this book, and I won't. According to the Bible, we will never understand this book. We'll never, we'll never understand the gospel and the message of the gospel beforehand that Genesis holds out to us from all kinds of uh, beautiful ways, which we'll see this next year together. We'll not understand the book without it. What we'll think we're learning without really learning. Uh, the Bible calls that sometimes uh, hearing but not perceiving. We'll, we'll kind of in a veiled manner be able to get some kinds of glimpses into some things, but we won't really, really understand. So we have to have to know the gospel. So a lot of what we'll be doing in this series then is reading the Bible backwards. We'll start in the New Testament and read it backwards into Genesis in the exact same way Paul does, the exact same way the New Testament does. We'll learn from that. We'll, we'll see the pattern of that and we'll apply that. Uh, together uh, as, as we should, as we're guided by the Spirit together through preaching, but also throughout the week as we talk about this in our community groups. Jesus actually often, uh, some of you might be aware of this, he would often in his ministry rebuke Jewish spiritual teacher types or leaders for reading the Old Testament as though it were not about him. You know, he, he would say things like, uh, if you believe Moses, and a lot of times Moses is just synonymous for the Pentateuch of the first five books of the Old Testament. If you believed him, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. But, but they, weren't, uh, they, they weren't reading it the right way. Or, or he'd say things like, you're Israel's teacher, 
he'd be talking about himself in reference to something the Old Testament said, and he'd say, and they don't understand it or see him in it. And he'd say, you, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? Well, how, how, can you te- how can you teach something properly or true to the people if you're not teaching me or, or, or the Christ, the Messiah beforehand, before they knew the name Jesus of Nazareth? How can you be teaching it properly if, if you're not teaching about me? Because it speaks about me entirely. So a lot of Jesus' rebuke to Jews in, in the gospel accounts in the New Testament is for reading the Old Testament in a non-Christocentric manner. If we ever read the Bible and don't get Jesus out of it, Martin Luther said in the 16th century, we have not truly encountered the word of God. And actually, I forgot to read Augustine before here too. Augustine says, it is not the Old Testament that is abolished in Christ, but the concealing veil, so that it may be understood through Christ. The New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old is made accessible by the New. So in other words, and we'd agree, this is spoken in the 4th century, Genesis is now made accessible by the gospel. Jesus and his blood, Jesus and his death on the cross, Jesus and his being risen from the tomb three days later, that, that good news, and, and our, the benefit that we get in that, that, that like pulls the veil up from the face of the Old Testament. So, so we can kind of, without Christ, we can kind of see shadows, but not clearly and not properly. Christ raises the veil so we can see clearly now. We can actually understand uh, what that story was all about. It was weird before, and now it's still weird, but it kind of makes sense. That's basically what we're going to see in this. Is, but without Christ, that's just like, what in the world is that doing there? But with Christ, oh, I guess I, I can kind of see now. The veil's pulled up. That's what Augustine's saying. It's what Martin Luther's saying. With, in this New Testament era, without Christ, it remains veiled to us. So we cannot understand it. So we have to read it uh, in, the, in this capacity. Now, this does not mean that there are not other things to say about Genesis. And we will talk about things like historical context and uh, how, how Genesis would have been understood uh, amidst counter-ideologies and theologies of the day, like Egyptian uh, and uh, other types of uh, other cultural perspectives on creation and flood and, and the, the, the pantheon of gods they believed in and so forth. We'll talk about some of that just for kind of context. And in regards to the creation narratives of Genesis 1 and 2, maybe how they line up with science and how, what, what's our perspective on that. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, here and there, but... All of this is to say that we will not make those things the main thing, and, and nor should you. Uh, that, that's not the main thing. Uh, those, are, those aren't the main things of the texts, of the passages, of the chapters, of the stories, of the narratives, uh, but rather uh, Christ beforehand, the gospel beforehand is. So, in other words, think about it this way. What, what we can say things about it, but what it's saying to us are different things altogether. So we can say things about the book that might be true and good and helpful, uh, but it might not be what the Bible's trying to say to us. doesn't mean that this over here is always bad. Sometimes it probably is. But this might actually be kind of a secondary, tertiary, helpful, interesting thing. But that's what we're saying about it. But what is it saying to us? What's the book trying to preach to us? How is it leading us to Jesus? What's it telling us about ourselves? What's it tell us about the character of God? Those are qualitatively different, and that's the main thing. And so we have to spend most of our time over here, and we will be doing that in preaching here, but I encourage you guys, as you read this yourself, devotionally with other people, your community groups or your, your spouses, whatever, your families, uh, is, is to uh, approach it uh, similarly. All right. Like I said about the, uh, the what, the what is Genesis, it's the same thing here with the with the how. If you want to talk more about the how with us, please don't hesitate. 
I uh, speak for Spence and uh, Peter, the rest of our elders here, Jesse and Chris, and we'd love to get, get coffee with you and talk more about that. There's so much more to say there, uh, but for today's purposes, just kind of giving the quick shot of that. So, All right, Genesis 1-1. So let's just start today. Uh, we're barely going to crack into this, and we'll uh, pick up the speed next week. Um, but Genesis 1-1 will start if you want to open your Bibles or follow on screen. The first uh, several words of, of the Bible, and we'll focus on the first four actually, but also uh, with some commentary on the next five uh, here too. So the first nine words. Genesis 1.1. The Bible begins by saying, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in the very beginning, and as uh, Peter said in reference to that song before, before there was time even, God exists outside of it. In the very beginning, before anything was created, there was God. Even just look at those first four words. In the beginning, God. And that tells us right off the bat who the main character is, right? This is a book about him. He's the hero. He's the main character. Uh, he was there in the beginning. He, if, if you know the last chapter of the Bible in Revelation 22, he's there at the end, his son. It's about grace at the end. Uh, here it's about creation. At the very end, it's about creation. We'll talk a little bit more about that today in coming weeks as well but it's about God. He's the main character. Nothing else existed. So this isn't Star Wars. That there's no equal and opposite side of the force here. It's just God. He, he, he's it. He, he exists in perfect. We'll talk more about the Trinity in coming weeks. It gets more clear that the Trinity is there, that Jesus is here, and the Holy Spirit as well. Um, but he, he exists in perfect relationship and harmony with himself relationally. That's really important for so many reasons uh, we, will, we will come to. But, but for today, in the beginning, God, just God, and he's good, and he created everything, including us. And we'll get to more specifics on, on the us a little bit later. At the end of chapter 1, there's a more detailed, into chapter 2, a more detailed account of what uh, it looked like for God to create human beings, and lots of great theology and important stuff there about ourselves and about Christ uh, that we'll come to. But today, it just says he created the heavens and the earth and, and everything in them. The, the earth is the Lord's. Psalm, uh, it's 126 says, and that song we sang earlier, says, in the fullness thereof, it belongs to him. So, uh, so right off the bat, there's this, um, and this is true in the Bible a lot, uh, and you've maybe seen this, where there's this humbling and encouraging aspect kind of married together. Uh, humbling, which can really hurt, but as we really understand things, there's that encouraging kind of married counterpart to it, that because uh, to be humble is actually to find a lot of joy. To get outside of ourselves is to be happy. And so there can be a humbling, ooh, that stings, but also, wow, that's really great uh, kind of component to this. Even just in the first four words. And right off the bat, uh, we get this. In that, it says, God made us. It's encouraging. There's intentionality, right, behind the fact that we're here. We're not accidents. Uh, God, and as we'll see more clearly later, God did not create because he was bored or because he needed us. He, he, he must have created then because he just wanted to share himself with us. And that's what the Bible says more clearly later. We'll get to that. He created us because he, he loved us, and like, like a, an artist wants to create. He wants to make us. He's not like, kind of like backed up, and all of a sudden his power kind of oozed out of himself, and all of a sudden, oop, there we were. Oops, what am I going to do with this now? Kind of thing, right? No, he's intentional. He wanted to make you and me. You are not an accident. So it's that great encouraging piece, but at, at the same time, we were not there in the beginning, and things were just fine. We were not there in the beginning, and things were just fine without us. 
but he made us anyway. So again, it's kind of that yo-yo between the two. There's that paradox of we matter to God, but it also says in the beginning you weren't there, and I was not there. This reminded me of how a a child might, and I have, some of you guys know I have a nine-year-old, a six-year-old, and a three-year-old, so it's kind of comes up sometimes just in daily life, but uh, it reminded me of how a child might act as though he's something around his parents, or if you're making some kind of cultural reference, and they start to kind of chime in on conversation. You guys ever had this before? Kind of chime in on conversation, like they know what they're talking about, and I don't know what it was the other day. It was some kind of music thing, or something, or TV show thing, and, or just, I don't know, life thing, and kids are kind of chiming in a bit. And um, it, it could be an arrogant thing, or it might not just be, it might just be a, hey, I want to belong thing, but whatever. It could, could be, though, if they're older, arrogantly claiming to understand how things were 30 years ago or something. But uh, in our minds, we might chuckle and think, you had nothing to do with 30 years ago. You know, like, the, the earth spun just fine without you here, little one. Uh, yet, yet here you are. You know, and, and, but I think, what I think as a parent is, oh, but you're here, and you're loved, but you're not needed. That's it's a very important uh, paradoxical kind of marriage there. You're loved, but you're not needed. And I think there's a whisper of that here in the first four words, I think, of, of Genesis 1. Loved, intended to be made, uh, but, but not needed at the same time. We were not there in, in the beginning. So as we stack on top of that then, we ask this greater question of, of and I'll ask this repeatedly throughout the series, Where else does this idea or phrase or theology occur in the Bible, especially the New Testament in relation to Christ, and how does that help us with its interpretation here? And when we ask that question, we're reminded that the New Testament begins with these exact same words, in the beginning. Uh, John 1, 1 to 3 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is Jesus here, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. So the New Testament begins in the exact same way that Genesis does. Mark 1 does basically as well, Mark 1.1, another one of the four gospel accounts in the the New Testament, says the beginning, this time, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the the Son of God. And these accounts, along with Matthew and Luke, there's four of them in in the New Testament, go on to tell us more about the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, using lots of creation imagery along the way. John especially, but all four gospel accounts do this. Lots of creation imagery along the way, much of which we'll look at in coming weeks, but understand today the basic premise that the gospel accounts are creation narratives. The gospel accounts are, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are actually creation narratives, they just focus on a new creation, the second creation, the spiritual one, the one Jesus is now associated with. 2 Corinthians uh, 5-7 says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is saved by him, the church is a new creation. And so the first creation then gives way to, uh, to a second one. So, if the gospel is then a story of God recreating things, making all things new, working to save, creation and salvation are closely linked, uh, all the way symbolically and theologically in a lot of ways. They are different but very similar. If they're linked like this, and the gospel is a story of a new creation, then it follows that the first creation imagery and theology can tell us a lot about the second creation and vice versa. In fact, here in, in John 1, 
John 1 flat out tells us that Jesus was there. The, the, the first nine words we just read are about Christ. Jesus is there. He's the word. And, and shortly here, and we'll come to this next week, God is going to speak with his words and make things. That actually is Christ. Because he, he's the word of God. And so John 1 then builds on that and says, on, on this side of Christ, he is the, the way God creates. In other words, the way God saves and those two things are linked in the world. That's how he saves and works and, and speaks and redeems. It's through, through his son. So, uh, so John 1 tells us this, and so we need to look for him here, uh, too, in, in, in Genesis. A lot of this is kind of foundation for uh, the next, uh, we have five weeks in chapter 1, we'll, we'll come back to it. But one example for today in Genesis 1.1, even just to see how this plays out with uh, a few introductory words to, to the chapter and the book and the whole Bible, is uh, coming at this from the vantage point of Hebrews 11.3, which is another New Testament passage on creation and how God created. It says, by faith, speaking to, to Christians now, so by faith, those of us who believe, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. Look how he expands on this, though, here. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, biblical scholar types call this idea God creating ex nihilo, which is Latin for out of nothing. So God created out of nothing. And Hebrews 3 is, is careful here to, to talk about how all Christians need to believe this. By faith, we have to uphold not just that God made things, but that there was nothing except himself in the very beginning. So maybe you're asking, why is that important? Why can't we just believe that God made? Is it really that big a deal if there was some kind of pre-existing matter that God existed alongside of that he used to, to sculpt uh, or, or, to, or to make us? Why is, and, and why then is faith linked up with ex nihilo here? Why is our faith our trust, our belief in God, believe in the gospel, linked with this idea of God making things, not of things that are visible, uh, but just uh, created by his word, it says there in Hebrews 11.3, and shows us in Genesis 1. The answer has to do with how God created as it relates to how he saves us. So it says, God created by word, not by what is seen or by what is visible or what is physical. In the same way, when he recreates us or saves us, he does so through his word, again, or Jesus. Not through us or with us, but aside from us. In other words, there's no, like there was no pre-existing matter in the beginning but God, so in us there's no pre-existing goodness in us that he uses or works with to sculpt the masterpiece. It's, it, there's nothing. He creates out of nothing, and he recreates or saves out of nothing or based on nothing inside of us at the same time. Again, so like in the beginning, he spoke and things that weren't were. So in the beginning of the gospel, think about it that way. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so to speak, he spoke through his son and saved us by grace, not our inherent pre-existing morals. So faith, this is why faith comes up. Faith then is tied to this because it leads us to trust in him rather than ourselves. In other words, Hebrews 11 does not say, by works we understand that the universe was created by God, but by faith we understand that the universe was created by God, right? 
But to say by works we understand that the universe was created by God would be to say that the universe was created by God, but through our eternally past existing goodness. But it doesn't say that. It says by faith we understand that there was nothing, then all of a sudden, by his word alone there was something. As Christians, we go all in on this idea, right? It's everything for us. We were dead and then we were alive. We were nothing and then we were something only because he said, get up, walk out of that tomb. You are not saved by what you do. You're not saved by turning God's head. You're not saved by, by being this interesting little mud pile that he says, oh, that's kind of pretty. I'm going to work with this. We, we are nothing without him. All things hold together by his powerful word. The, it says in Ephesians 1.10, all things are held together by Jesus Christ and ultimately him crucified and, and risen. So that's really what we're seeing here, and we're going to build on this in coming weeks. Uh, by means of uh, encouragement for these next few weeks for you guys, I want to encourage you to read this book, but take away, maybe even in a sitting. It's 50 chapters, might take you about four plus hours, but I'd encourage you to, or maybe in a few weeks, that's too much, whatever, but to have it in your mind, and have this type of premise in mind when you do. There are two creations in the Bible, and there are pictures and whispers and hints of Christ, not just in the creation, but in the, the storyline of the, the family of Abraham. But what, I, what I want you to take, though, from, from chapter 1-1 one, one today, too, before we leave, is in the beginning, God, not in the beginning, you. In the beginning, God, not in the beginning, you. Relatedly, the beginning and ultimately the ending of the gospel for you and me is God. God is our grace. He's our gospel. He's our savior, not, not us. Uh, it's about making, him making and remaking us, not about us pre-existing, again, like we've been talking about in any way whatsoever beforehand. Or, or as Jesus says in, in John 3, 3 and 4, it's about being reborn. Uh, Jesus answered him. I don't know if I have a slide for this or not. I don't think I do. John 3, 3 to 4 says, uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, uh, a teacher of the day, a Jewish uh, Pharisee, a teacher of the day. And Jesus answered Nicodemus saying, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, as you might expect, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's like, you know, it's not quite getting it, but he's, try he's trying, you know, it's point points for effort there, Nicodemus, but no, it's good. But I, the, the answer is to Nicodemus's question, of course not. A, a man can't enter a enter a second time into his mother's womb. It's ridiculous to think so. You know what's also ridiculous? Thinking you can save yourself from your sins. It's the same thing. It's the same as saying, it's possible for me to enter a second time into my mother's womb and be born all on my own strength. It's the same as saying, I can save myself from my sins. Both are equally ridiculous. That's why Jesus is using this here. Well, how can we enter again? Jesus is saying, well, the only way for you to be recreated is, is for Jesus' grace to, to have that come upon you, to, to be saved from something outside of you. Did any of us choose to be born? What makes, we, what makes us think then we're gonna, we can choose to be reborn? We can, obviously, we can respond and choose Christ, but he needs to be at work. He needs to save us, not based on anything that we do, but based on his love. And, and so Christ here does not say, those who are good get in, but rather those who are reborn. That's very different, you guys. 
please hear that. Jesus does not say here, talking about salvation, good people get in, but rather only those who are remade. Different. Sinners who are recreated. Sinners who fall on their knees and beat their chest and say, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner, and cry out to be remade. Those people get in. Not the good who think they're something when they're nothing. Not the good who think that God worked with some kind of material inside of them to sculpt a masterpiece so they can partially boast in who they are. Goodness and recreation are actually different here. I mean, there, there can be some ways those kind of bump up to next, next to each other, but Jesus does not say those who keep the Ten Commandments or those who are good enter the kingdom of God, but rather only those who are born again. And so we're left with open hands saying, how does, well, how can I, how can I be reborn? Like Nicodemus is saying, right? Well, that, if that's the way you get in, tell me how that happens. And Jesus says, here in this context, and of course throughout his ministry, the whole Bible says this, by grace you are saved through faith, not by yourselves. So the beginning and ending of the gospel for us then is Christ and him crucified, uh, not, not ourselves and our good works. Uh, one of my favorite parts of the, the Passion movie, if you've seen it, um, is a small exchange Christ has when he's carrying the cross to the hill. Uh, he sees his mother, and he looks at her and says, see mother, I make all things new. And he gets a second wind of strength, picks his cross up, and makes headway to Golgotha. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning of the gospel, God did that. He recreated through his son. In both cases, you and I don't really choose it. It chooses us. Be free in that. Be encouraged. Respond to it. But know that God is at work intentionally creating and intentionally recreating or saving in the world. He loves you. He loves you. So, so Genesis 1, is, is this, that's what this is about. The first verse, anyway, uh, is all of it. But this part we're looking at today specifically is about helping us to get over ourselves and, and to put something other than ourselves at the center of the universe. And uh, that might be kind of a duh thing for some of you. You might have heard this before, but uh, don't, I mean, uh, I guess I'll say this for myself too, but because this is, this is testimonial here at this point. Uh, d don't ever presume that you have a corner on the market or some ability, some great ability uh, to not think more of yourself than you ought. Uh, you had the propensity every day to, and this is actually what Christ ends up saving us from, is he... He dies for people who want themselves to increase, but God to decrease. So don't, don't wake up every day presuming that you've kind of just, you've got, got this, this whole thing uh, checked off, that, that you are over yourselves. None of us are over ourselves yet. <laughs> With Christ, it's possible, but all of us are hopelessly given over to self-glorification. All of us. And some of you know that, some of you don't yet, some of you are finding that out, it's kind of scary. Uh, I hope all of you will if you haven't yet, but that, that's, that's sin, ultimately. Uh, it's not, I, I screwed up and looked at porn yesterday, though that is a problem, that, that is sinful, that's harmful to your, your wife if you're married, or yourself, and it's offense to God, all of that, but what's ultimately the problem is that you put yourself on the throne of your life and you said, I can do what I want. Get away from me, God. I am, I am God, you are not. I am divine. 
I am something and, and you are nothing to me. I am increasing in this moment and you are decreasing to me. That's ultimately what, what sin is and what happens whether we lie or whether we are prideful, whether we um, just hurt, hurt someone in some way or, or it's sexual sin or whatever it is. It's a replacing of God with ourselves. So Genesis 1, the first four words, in the beginning God is not insignificant. It's not inconsequential. God is the focus, not you. And so I hope that's, again, marry that humility and that encouragement there. Those things go together. If that stings, good. You're feeling it right. That's encouraging, good. Then you're also feeling it right. I hope you feel a little bit of both of that, though. That, you know, when someone really gets over themselves in life and they feel like, you know what, I, it's not about me anymore, there's a lot of freedom in that. Uh, you are not the center of your life, or you don't have to be anymore. In the beginning, God says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll remake you. I love you. I have intentionality here uh, to, to save. And so, as the story goes on here, we're, we're going to see that um, Satan's temptation strikes at the core of that very freeing reality. What Satan's going to say to Adam and Eve here, we'll look at this in a few weeks, uh, his ultimate temptation strikes at the core of that very freeing reality being, it's not about me. Satan says, oh, it is about you. And all hell breaks loose ever since. Christ will later break into that and redeem us from that, but it's the lie that we all hear and listen to uh, every, every day, moment of our lives, uh, that even just the first verse of the Bible gives us this whisper of, of countering it, this whisper of good news that is completed later in the story through Jesus Christ. And so for today, it's a to be continued, uh, ultimately. Uh, but we are, we're heading that way. So, and, and until then here, we, uh, I figured out we have 1,532 verses to go. We, we will pick up the pace in uh, coming weeks. We will not, not be here 20 years from now, whatever that is. But, uh, <clears throat> but we, have, uh, we have one verse down. So let's, let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this, this book of the Bible. Thank you for telling us a lot about the beginning. Thank you for hiding a lot from us about the beginning so that we might not be caught up or haughty or prideful in ourselves or know too much about things we just don't need to know about. You told us exactly what we needed to know and nothing more. Help us to have humility in that, God, and um, to trust you in that. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for the gospel, which reminds us that it is a second creation, that uh, the first and second creation speak to each other. They inform each other. And the latter one is the much better one. Uh, it's the one where you get more glory. It's the one where more clarity uh, comes into the world. And, and so, God, help us as people, wherever we are spiritually, uh, to, to come to you, kind of like Nicodemus, and have an exchange with, with Jesus. And the, the, the beginning of the gospel there is Jesus saying, you have to be reborn, uh, and you can't do that. And that's, that's, a, that's a, a steamrolling, arrow-pointing, just story-driving-ahead type comment there to, uh, that makes a beeline to the cross. The only way we're saved is if God does something. And what does he do? He sends his son into the world uh, to speak love and grace and to embody love and grace on a cross among criminals in the most unjust, unfair manner and torturous way possible, but for us. Thank you, God, for dying for us. Thank you for creating by your word in a majestic, wonderful, can never fully comprehend manner Thank you especially, though, for recreating by the word of Christ and saving us by, by your grace. Uh, God, bless our study in Genesis. I pray that 
uh, you, you, Spirit, would help us to understand these foggier, really tricky narratives that we're going to even just start in uh, next week, but really uh, continue in a little bit later. Grant clarity through your son uh, to what's really going on in the early stages here of, of history and biblical history at that. In Christ's name, amen.